Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold on. So I spent money on shampoo. I mean, I bought shampoo before, but I never really actually spent money on shampoo. And now my head feels really nice. And my hair is acting, like behaving like a gentleman. I don't know. Welcome to another episode of the Boyce of Reason podcast. This is your host, Benjamin Boyce. And today's guest is Sasha Ayad, who is a licensed professional counselor specializing in teens or in helping teens. Uh, in this discussion, we use the court case in the UK uh, between a tribunal, <laughs> employment tribunal. That word always creeps me out in Canada. And it looks like the UK are just like throwing tribunals all over the place. Uh, I guess that's where they want to head with things. But anyways, this uh, woman, Maya Forstatter, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, was uh, was recently ruled that her behavior with regards to expressing her belief uh, with regards to the difference between men and women and calling a man a man and not or refusing to call a man a woman. It was ruled, uh, I guess, proper that her employer didn't rehire her, effectively fire her. And that had to do in the ruling with a notion of dignity and how dignity is being violated by people's beliefs, by other competing beliefs. And now Sasha and I aren't legal experts whatsoever, but we use that as the discussion prompt to talk about what it means to have dignity. How do you show dignity? Can dignity come from the outside into you, you know, and how do you prove that you have dignity? And then that goes into to a very deep discussion. The deepest part of the pool today is about the roots of tolerance and how to actually build tolerance from the ground up in a way that's stable and how the sort of tolerance that we're seeing now is unstable, possibly because it skipped some very essential steps. The audio is a little wonky and so is the video. Um, I've gotten a new camera set up and the Skype uh, lemons were not something that I could totally make perfect lemonade out of, but I apologize beforehand. And I would like to add that at the very end of this episode, I'm reaching for the word leverage. Leverage is the word that I'm looking for. That's footnote two. So here's Sasha and myself. Enjoy. My headphones are invisible like so much about you <laughs> okay <laughs> you see this is why the start of our videos are awkward because you say things like that <laughs> well, come on and the ends aren't jeez oh the ends are awkward and that's 100 percent my fault so that's fair well, at least i'm wearing jeans well i am wearing uh, don't, don't. you don't have to comfortable comfortable clothes yes yes <laughs> so you can pound pounce around like a gazelle on the plains when you're done <laughs> yes i live in the plains of, of houston texas houston i always think you're in dallas for some reason i don't know why well i don't know either 
What a day to discuss things because there is a lot going on in the world. There's a lot going on and yeah. some of it you don't even want to talk about. Yeah, I just, um, I just want to lift up the best thing that I've read about this whole um, debacle in the UK was by Claire Graham. Hold on. You, you need to sketch this debacle. Just two seconds. Okay. So Maya Fostadter basically has written, I mean, she's a feminist and, and a mother, and she's had some concerns about um, self, self ID in the UK and the Gender Recognition Act. And she's been writing about it, um, just talking about the fact that biological sex is not an immutable characteristic and saying something that would otherwise be considered very mundane and obvious has gotten her fired um, from her position and there was some sort of tribunals and I think that the crux of it is that saying that biological sex is immutable is somehow um, incompatible with dignity for trans people that's really the clincher which I find unusual and disheartening and I think mm. what Claire Graham wrote about the way disorders of sexual development are being used and kind of volleyed back and forth in this argument made a lot of sense to me because she discussed that an essential part of having dignity is being able to hear the truth about your body hmm. rather than trying to wipe out what we sense to be true, what we know to be true, and the, the biological reality of somebody's body regardless of their identity or what condition they have and that just really rang true for me um it was an emotional piece and, and i just tweeted about it but i thought that was uh one of the most grounded arguments and reactions mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's really difficult to um draw lines around uh like an ethical quality like what is dignity and how do you defend what dignity is and especially if you can't even have a discussion about what dignity is it seems that the radicals in this debate have claimed territory that, that they won't concede and will call everybody else evil that even questions that and mm -hmm. so it's it's impossible to actually engage in as a society in this issue uh, with those voices dominating the issue. Yeah. yeah. And, and to act as though dignity requires us to modify what we know to be true, I think that is really troubling. Because I think part of what dignity means is being able as a human being to stand in the reality of um, the truth of what somebody has done, who somebody is, how somebody looks, and still be able to have human value. But you have to wipe the slate clean and pretend that a person hasn't done what they've done, or a person isn't who they are, in order to give them human value. That hmm. That is dehumanizing, I think. Uh, yeah, it is dehumanizing, and I don't see how it would scale outside of that conversation that's dominated by those um those voices like uh somebody just wrote under the brief video i did about this with regards to jk rowling coming out in this mm -hmm. um conversation and somebody wrote to say you know twitter is not the voting block 
And the UK just saw that very definitely that mm-hmm. you know, these little online communities are not, they don't translate into reality. I think there's something a little bit ironic right now, given how much um, certain movements talk about lived experience that doesn't seem to actually be congruent with what what you might think they mean by that. So when when you and I notice what's happening in our work, people are being told that something they intrinsically, intuitively sense and know is true is not allowed to be named. It's not allowed to be even felt. That's some sort of a, I mean, we talk about thought crimes from the Orwellian perspective, but really we're also talking a violation of an internal knowing that originates from our felt experience. We have five senses and we we perceive and are conscious in the world through an embodied awareness. But when you have entities, whether it's a government entity or, or an activist organization or a school or your employer telling you, you're not allowed to actually recognize what your felt senses know to be true. That's such a, a disembodied and ingenuous and crazy making command to place on people. And I mean, for that, for that alone, I think it is very important to recognize what is happening. And that, that shouldn't be a political statement. I mean, whether you are far left or far right, we all have a body and we all experience the world through our body. You tell people your eyes are lying to you, your gut is lying to you, like, no, that's not really what you saw. That's really dangerous. I mean, that that's enough to drive a society kind of mad, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean... What is the outcome of that? <laughs> I mean, how far along that route can somebody go before the craziness kicks in? Well, I think it'll first, we'll end up pushing with ourselves, and that's going to manifest as, you know, highly dissociative people, highly anxious people, people who get into kind of fight, flight, or shut down. You know, I think you see that a lot. Hmm. People who can't trust what their senses are telling them, what their body's telling them. So it's probably going to start with the self kind of sabotaging manifestation first. And I mean, anybody who's ever existed in kind of a hypervigilant state or a very shut down emotional state for a prolonged period of time, I'm not talking about situationally, you know, like yeah. something jumps out from behind the trash can. And, you, you know, if you are living in a state in which you're nervous system is in a heightened or shut down state. You also can't interact with others very well. So, you know, we're going to end up experiencing all of this personalized, internalized distress. And then I think we're already seeing people struggling to interact. But it's it's odd because I think in-person interactions are much more contained, much more empathic. But the longer we disconnect and we disembody and then we have these types of interactions with one another via screens, really, um, there is some dissolution there for sure. Yeah. I don't know how Do you think that we could, just as a thought experiment, like some sort of Mm -hmm. science fiction uh, book, do you think that 
a society could come up with like certain languages that you just inhabit whenever you're shuffling an idea back and forth. Like you would have to like constrain yourself to certain sorts of behavior in order to not trigger that dissociation. So like, I wonder if like the psyche can start to adapt and just see things or just start to ignore or block off certain realities as a matter of course, just so they don't, you don't get, not a band, let's say, or, or mm. attacked or something like mm. that. I think if anything, what's happening is more and more women are realizing that it, it is true that our rights are going to be fundamentally erased by the, the aggressive way that this movement is trying to encroach on, you know, sex-based rights. So this, mm. this I think, in some ways is a wake-up call. So it might be corrective, um, in that people are recognizing what's happening. And I mean, something that Posey Parker said in her interview kept striking me. She kept saying, um, the fact that I'm famous for saying that males are males and females are females just goes to show, like she phrased it in a way that was much more impactful than that. But she said, why am I famous for saying something so obvious? <laughs> yeah. I loved that. She, she she just it just hit me like a ton of bricks when she said that. Well, okay, but how about the dignity of women? So I kind of understand if you go through and you look at the court case with Maya with her tweets, like she 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 was rude, right? She was she was brash, she was rude. I could see how you could see that being rude to somebody is grounds for not treating them with dignity. Um, so I understand that, but the judge goes all the way over to this thing saying that you cannot to imply that this person who's by the state changed their sex to imply that they haven't changed their sex is a violation of their dignity. Like that, that's the problem with the law. That, that's the, that's the fundamental question. Like, and what about the dignity of women? What, why are we sacrificing the dignity of one group for the dignity of, e of an even smaller group? What's really tough is that dignity is something that isn't necessarily mediated only based on what another person does towards you. Because dignity is a sense that you have about yourself. And I think true dignity can exist respective of what someone else has said about you or done to you. I mean, this is a really important topic when you think about people who are traumatized or oppressed or abused in, in egregious ways. The process of healing is helping somebody to reclaim their dignity, despite whatever they have been through. So for us as a, a society to say, um, saying these words to another person inherently strips them of their dignity. It's it's tricky. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Because obviously there are certain, let's say, let's say we're talking about language. I mean, certain words or certain is a person might talk to another that is intended to strip them of their dignity, that is supposed to be degrading, that is meant to tear someone down. But is it is it impossible for a person who hears those words or who has had those words said to them to still be dignified and to have their own sense of dignity 
and that's really complex and it's based on so many contextual factors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well if you if you think about it in the world the only way to prove your dignity is to be faced with something that's indignant you know towards you mm-hmm. the only way to, to experience courage is to be in a scary situation or, or to, to display certain characteristics in order yeah. to own those yeah. characteristics you need to perform those characteristics and, and something like dignity or honor or courage um, yeah. or value if it emanates from the human being then that's when they really own it if it is given to them from the outside then they don't really own it furthermore if they are kept from ever receiving any sort of indignant uh, thing coming their way, then how will they ever develop dignity? So it, mm-hmm. it almost goes down mm-hmm. to a conception of what is a human being underneath that law or underneath that judgment that I don't yeah. fully understand what the judge is trying to, to say, but I think that there's a conception of the human being with, with regards to uh, fairness or equality where, where people deserve something from society and I, I yeah. do deserve. I do think that they don't deserve pain and hardship. They don't deserve right, to right, be right. slandered or discriminated right. against, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's it's like I can imagine people on the other side of this argument saying, "Well, does that mean that we should um, turn a blind eye to?" behavior that is meant to be hurtful or harmful or oppressive or, um, you know, strip someone of their dignity. And no, uh, but I think there's, there's a lot of faith in, in the human spirit and what humans are capable of when given the kind of foundations of, of, well, who are you? Do you have inherent value? And if so, how can you try to respond to the world around you in such a way that you preserve that feeling? Mm-hmm. And that's different from saying we're going to try to regulate who can say what in order to preserve everybody's sense of dignity. It's like we're going to try and eradicate any personal struggle mm-hmm. to recognize uh, first of all i mean something that comes up for me is when somebody has been done wrong let's say part of what they have to do in order to grow from the experience is oftentimes get a little bit of psychological distance from that experience be able to recognize what happened and understand with their their mind what happened And then be able to recognize that they are not inherently defined by that experience. And I think what some of this legislation that we're seeing, some of the ideas coming out of these types of policies is that we want to prevent somebody from ever having to do that work. As Mm. though we can eradicate meanness or cruelty or people's own traumas and maybe that's why they're going around traumatizing others i mean you cannot eradicate that by legislating it out now should we have values-based rules on what happens in a society that are globally 
agreed upon? Absolutely. But to try and legislate out human conflict or even just our own personal way of being, our own personal reactions to things, our disposition, it's, it's not something we can do. I see. I see it. Even if we can do it, I see it infinitely escalating. Like there was, there would be no way that this ruling could have happened fifty years ago, uh, and not just because of the acceptance of difference. There's one thing like the the progressive march towards accepting of difference, and then uh, you know sussing out competing claims of uh, of fairness. That's that's one thing. But because we have less and less hardship. I see judges going into power and lawyers going into power that constantly try to extend even more uh, dignity, mm. let's say, or even more uh, protection uh, because mm. people are losing the tolerance towards adversity and then everybody in the whole society is losing more and more tolerance or start to become intolerant more and more towards adversity. So because nobody's being exposed to that. And so there's no referent point. I, I agree with you. And I also think um, the flip side of that is if we focus on the fact that all human beings have inherent dignity and value, I think you'll see less people lashing out at somebody else. I mean, the more we try to shame and blame and label people for being whatever kind of sexist or phobic or whatever though yeah. i think that's true there there is absolutely transphobia and sexism but if all we're doing is trying to call out people and use those types of labels that the rage that they feel from being accused is going to go somewhere and it's not likely to a good place i mean i don't know many people who have transformed from being an actual hateful bigot into like a loving, compassionate, thoughtful person because they were called a bunch of names. I think if anything, people who are already on the side of being um, kind of sensitive and not wanting to harm others and wanting to be really conscientious about their behavior, they're the ones who are being really um, pushed into a self-flagellation and an incredible sense of guilt about any thought that they have, any kind of intuition that they have, any reaction that they have. So I just see this as not just an issue of, well, people are so fragile that they don't know how to deal with adversity. It's also people are being taught that the way to respond is to blame others and to lash out at others, mm -hmm. regardless of what side you're on. And that's just you, you amping make, up everybody's anger. Yeah, you make a really good point that the um, those who want to care, those who are swept up in the act of caring, the political act of showing that they care, they are mm -hmm. already you know psychologically predisposed to care. So they already yes. have like an open heart, which means that they're already yes. vulnerable. And then yes. they're being made even more and more vulnerable. And then oh. you have this weird political, then once it gets into somebody like Trump, comes along and people completely lose their grounding at all. And then you have a bunch of videos, you know, of the SJW stuff reacting because those people don't have, they don't have dignity at that moment because they, they, mm. they 
their their dignity is not based on something that they can own themselves that they've practiced and developed themselves it's been based on some sort of societal groupthink or, or agreement of of care and harm mm-hmm. and so that, mm-hmm. uh, maybe we see a lot of the uh the you know the the typical the stereotypical sjw stuff it, it it's not because they're crazy it's because that they've misplaced their agency and so the, the, we see them in these very vulnerable spaces or, or yeah. moments because they don't have that they don't have that grounding and stuff and and it's further exacerbated by the fact that they're pushing to get facts they're pushing to get everything that could ground you taken off the table just basic mm-hmm. like you're saying like if if once you start to once you start to deny your sex what's to say you're going to not uh, disregard your breathing, you know, like just like very basic physiological things. Cause it's all tied together. So, and breathing yeah. is one of the principal ways to calm down, you know, but like, you, know, you can't yeah. trust that either. You know, like where, where does it stop? Where does that disassociation yeah. stop? Yeah. Well, it could be this never ending, you know, just spiral of disassociation or dissociation. Um, that is really scary. I mean, that really bothers me. And if we if we lose the connection to our sense of being alive and human and mammals and in bodies, I just don't know what do we have at that point. I mean, what what are we? It just really worries me. I try. I know that sometimes when I talk about this stuff, I get very kind of doom and gloom. But I just don't know what we do if we don't have our connection to our bodies. There, there's nothing beyond that. Hmm. Do you think that that's all we are? That's a true that question. That seems so reductionistic. I okay, mean, yeah. we we are our bodies. That's not a bad thing. Our bodies are an incredibly intelligent source of knowledge, wisdom, awareness, uh, information. So that's not something we should be ashamed of. I mean, our bodies are quite incredible. Um, so they follow us wherever we go too. I mean, even into the realm (laughs) of lights and sounds, I mean, I, sorry to be crude, but like, there's a reason why there's so much pornography on the internet because it interacts directly with the body. Like it, it, Hmm. it takes all this light and sound and it plugs it into the body and it creates this physical reaction. So we, we bring our bodies along, we're uploading them constantly and all this rage and anger, it's totally informed by hormones and stress hormones and, you know, like all the outrage stuff. It's always informed by the body. That's, that's interesting. Cause I wouldn't, I wouldn't frame it like that. I guess in some ways, yes. Um, this is what I think about porn this is going to be a weird analogy but let's say you're driving along and you see some roadkill okay it is a formerly alive creature oh i I already feel this is going to go in a bad direction but if you were able to somehow (laughs) like take this roadkill home and strap it up to some device that sends electricity into its body and like wakes it up artificially that is to me what porn is doing it's an artificial way of creating arousal based on i think an actually quite disembodied experience because it's only using 
one of the senses, first of all, and it's an What's artificial. It? Well, I mean, you, you could technically just be staring at pornography and not doing anything with the rest of your body and yeah. become aroused. So yeah. at some level, it's just uh, it's like short. It's like a shortcut to arousal that isn't really embodied. Um, mm -hmm. So. I, I agree with you in that it's it's using people's arousal mechanisms, but I don't think it's really a, an embodied experience at all. Hi, Benjamin. I really wanted to clarify my very strange roadkill comment, so I thought maybe if you can keep this in your video, maybe you can play it during cat footage or something. But. Um, the reason I said that is because people who use a lot of pornography report that with time they require more and more graphic images and um, extreme uh, visuals in order to achieve the same kind of arousal that worked for them at the beginning. So what I think is happening is that porn actually interferes with our ability to actually connect to the sensation that causes arousal and pleasure. So if somebody has not used pornography, then they're actually able to become aroused and experience pleasure just through the sensation of touch and what their body is experiencing. So I think that porn ends up kind of shortcutting to arousal without um, a person necessarily being present with or connected to the actual sensations that that cause arousal and pleasure. So I hope that clarifies things and I hope you'll be able to somehow find a way to stick this little comment into your video. So um, awkwardly signing off, thanks a lot, bye. And how can we take that that insight? Which is a very profound insight. I don't think that, I mean, I've, I've written I've written at least one book, like really deeply exploring what, exactly what you're saying about that, about hmm. the, the undead the undeadness of that kind of sexuality. But is it not the case that something very similar is, is occurring with re, with arousal in other senses, with regards to justice, with regards to outrage? And it's like we're, we're, we're hijacking these, these mechanisms within us in order to produce something that is not... It, it, it looks and it sounds like it's a threat or it's powerful or it's beautiful but it doesn't mm -hmm. actually matter and and like again with the UK election and we'll see if this is repeated in America I like all this disembodied rage all this dis, all these disembodied experiences don't translate across all of society because not everybody can completely dissociate themselves from their bodies and mm. uh, and then okay then the the other question is like if if it's the case that somebody's biologically predisposed to be sexist let's say um and sexist just as in i perceive that women are weaker than i am so it's my duty to help them or to to give my strength to them i mean that would be the positive sort of sexism mm. but th mm -hmm. it's it's informed by bi biology informed by my upbringing which came from my mother who embodied me and then imparted mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that embodied understanding of how to treat other bodies. Um, mm. if, it, if it turns out the case that, that, let's say, homophobia is biological, 
you know, th- it doesn't mm. mean that we can say it's okay. So it's like there's mm. there's ways, to, but if we can understand that there's physiological reasons why somebody would be predisposed to to be uh, disgusted, let's say by by homosexual sex acts, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's mm. probably a good basis in that, but there's still a way for society to navigate hate, you know, based on that. Like it doesn't mean that that needs to right. manifest in a harmful way but but because yeah. we're so I'm, I'm really out on a limb here but because we're so disembodied in the conversation yeah. we can't even actually ground ourselves and in, into what's informing the other side what's informing all of us all the time yes 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 this is so this is so important well i think that that we have we have to be able to separate our kind of intrinsic sense of intuition or our kind of reflex reactions from our thinking function. So something that kind of came up to me is reading a lot of um, young women who have detransitioned. Eventually, sometimes they will come out as lesbian. A lot of them have come out as being. And I often will hear them talk about how they thought, oh, well, I'm not homophobic. Like, I believe that it's totally fine to be gay. So I didn't think I could have been internally, you know, lesbophobic when I was trying to sort out my identity. And I guess what I would say is that there that means to me that there was some internal feeling of um, reaction or revulsion or something that came up in them before they transitioned about the idea of being gay. That was probably a very deep visceral response that even though their their attitudes and perceptions about homosexuality were very liberal and accepting, Hmm. there was something internal that just struck them as off. Now, that doesn't mean that you take your visceral reaction and follow it to its ends. What it tells you is something important here I just need to look at. I need to be curious about. I shouldn't simply dismiss something just because, well, my brain feels this way about it, so I don't worry about my body. Maybe it's telling you you know, you need to actually pay attention to this feeling you're having. Maybe you need to work through what that means. Maybe you need to embrace the fact that you have attractions for other women. I mean, that is a powerful signal from your body, from your kind of reflex. That means you need to give it some gentle, compassionate attention just to see where it leads. Yeah. And I think we get really stuck on this idea that, well, I explicitly believe this or that thing, and therefore, you know, I don't have to listen to my body. I don't need to worry mm. about that because I'm I'm only in my mind. I'm only in my head. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't and mean that you are hating. You're you're hating yourself because you had a visceral reaction. Maybe it's just new or or. You haven't figured out how to process it yet. Maybe it needs some more time and exploration. It doesn't mean that you hated yourself. I mean, it might, but I think we are very quick to call everything like hatred if it lit up a visceral reaction in us. And Mm. I'm really, I'm a little bit cautious about that. I know that helps people to understand and process why they felt so disconnected from their attractions, but I also am very... um, careful not to call our own 
body reactions hate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what is happening with transphobia. Um, if you, I don't know if you saw, there was some kind of, well, let me say in general, there's a lot of talk about the sexualization of children, right? And that um, kids should be comfortable talking about different gender identities and sexual identities very young. And the reality is, when a parent has a visceral reaction to that, or a child has a visceral reaction to, you know, her peer coming into school the next day wearing a dress and saying he's a girl, those are reactions that we have to honor. We can't say, you shouldn't say that, that's transphobic. That's so unfair, because we all have reactions. It is okay to say, you know, you can feel how you want to feel, but let's treat everybody with dignity, or let's mm -hmm. treat everybody kindly. But it's not okay to say you're not supposed to think that or you're not supposed to feel that or, you know, those are really not, not helpful ways that we should be relating to our own intuitions or our own reflexes, our own reactions. There's a lot of gaslighting and that word is used to gaslit. <laughs> yeah. Everybody all the time. So I, know, I mean, I mean, I I'm tra trading very carefully <laughs> with that word. Yeah. But the whole idea of you, you just brought up this interesting little tool that's used to dissociate people from their experiences um, yes. in the name of justice and in the name of dignity, yes. saying that yes. it's a social construct. My my internal. Uh, homophobia, let's say, is a social construct. The society is the one that's making me feel that way. When actually, if you what you just described was that actually society is forcing you not to think that way, which is causing discomfort. And if you don't pay attention to that discomfort, it's going to pop up somewhere else. So there, that that push towards acceptance, the push towards tolerance, in and of itself, can't proceed if the basic reality of somebody's feelings isn't in in tune with yeah. with that whole project yeah. and and yeah. going along that route is more uncomfortable and requires more patience and might lead to the opposite of tolerance in certain cases but if if you skip out that that process then it leads up to where we are now where people are now saying you cannot see this person this this man that's standing in front of you you cannot see them as a man anymore because it's unjust. It's a social construct that you even perceive them as a man. It literally gives me chills. It's so terrifying because I mean, I of course live in my body and as a growing up, I remember being able to recognize times when guys were being really aggressive and made me feel very uncomfortable or even if they weren't being very aggressive. There was just something off about the way they might have been talking to me or relating to me. And thank God for those internal senses, because with time and maturity and, you know, going through things, I was able to figure out what those internal warnings mean. And when you feel like a sense of stability and safety, I mean, thank goodness, I've never been through anything hugely traumatic. I have a pretty regulated system, I'm able to accurately sense if someone is a threat or not. But kids who are growing up today um, are, are being told that you cannot trust 
what your body is telling you. And I, I think about all the times where I see um, young lesbians posting about how they're being told you have to sleep with trans women and all of this stuff. Just let's swap it out. I mean, if it was, if it was just a, a girl in a schoolyard and a boy was being kind of sexually aggressive towards her, a boy who identified as a boy, we wouldn't tell her, no, you have to like it. You have to stop your internalized misandry. I mean, we wouldn't say that. Not 2019, at least. That's not something we would think. So mm-hmm. why is it that, you know, based on the demographics of the people interacting, we're not supposed to actually sense what our internal system is telling us. That's so unfair. To me, that's the definition of gaslighting. Yeah. And I really do think it proceeds from very, um, very minuscule little separations from reality. And, yeah. and, and then it builds up to where we are now. And, and I think that what's at risk here is the project of tolerance. That's what's mm. at risk here because people have not built it correctly. And so it, it potentially it could just crash down. I don't think that's really going to happen, but I think it potentially could if people keep on putting more and more weight on it and, and people keep on gaming it for their own selfish ends, whether they're monetary or sexual or just because they think that they're right and they want everybody else to believe that yeah. thing too. Uh, and so I think that, that just going really going back to the first principles being that, yeah, I want to be tolerant, but I have to be safe first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. and then and then when people start to act out and say transphobic things, does that really matter? Maybe they're just not there yet. Maybe they're not ready or maybe they're they're reacting to something that we don't see the way that they've been treated by these people. You know, we don't yeah. we don't know and we don't, yeah. we don't necessarily need the government. Or, or even society going after these people without that kind of sense of compassion. It's like, okay, mm. because you're not going to even change those people by shutting mm-hmm. them up or kicking them off. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. we both know people that keep on just falling falling left and right around us in this debate. Yeah, for sure. And I think, like, the, the remedy to this is spending a significant amounts of time with people who might initially cause that kind of reaction in you that like, like I'm a little bit suspicious or I'm feeling uncomfortable reaction. Um, I don't remember the the name of the researchers, but there were some researchers that um, discovered that if somebody, let's say, is really racist, spending just a little bit of time around, you know, maybe people of color or black people doesn't actually do anything to resolve their racism. But if they have really close intimate, not sexually intimate, but like emotionally intimate relationships with people of that race over a prolonged period of time, that really helps to resolve those unfortunately racist impulses that they might have. So the way to bypass this, because I think there is really a positive impulse maybe underneath some of this, which is we don't want people to be transphobic. We don't want people to be sexed but the way to, to ameliorate that is not to brain train them. It's to help them have human relationships that are meaningful, that to something um, deeper about people that you might initially judged. Yeah. Which doesn't actually cause you to betray your internal reaction what it does is it's going to change the way you feel so rather than saying betray your feelings because you intellectually know it's bad to be racist what you're doing is you're changing the actual body reaction your body will become 
more comfortable. Your body will feel more open. You won't be as tense and closed up. So that's the way, I mean, that's my opinion. That's the way to actually change some of these isms that really are, we do want to get rid of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really, I think this has been one major refrain in our conversation. It comes back to the problems and the solutions, which turned out to be problems, are all based on some sort of very rudimentary misunderstanding about what it is to be a human being. First and foremost, what is a human being? Let's build the construct of what is a human being. And then you can start talking about dignity. Then you can start talking about justice. If you don't do those basic if you don't do the basic things, what are you actually standing on other than power or just the yeah. assertion of reality? Uh, and what, where, where's your, uh, your, what's that? Called? When, when you're a boxer, you, you need the weight. What's that? It's a physical thing. Like you need that, uh, the pivot. There's a, there's a word I'm looking for. The pivot. I don't know. You know, like when, when your body weight. Now yeah, I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah, it's just an analogy about like, well, if you have something to stand on, then you have, you can create force, you know, mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. that, there's a stupid term. I can't think of it. Just a word in my tree. Maybe you can Google it later and include it in the, the notes. 